This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Brandon Webb, among other things, he's the CEO of an excellent uh, news service, foreign news, defense news, military news, international news, domestic news. It's called SoftRep, S-O-F-R-E-P. He started the Sniper School for the SEALs. Brandon Webb's also written novels about the military. He's all around jack of all trades. And his 2022 predictions came out. And again, SoftRep has people on the ground in a hundred different countries. So they're an excellent source of predictions and knowledge of what's happening. And he comes on the podcast to talk about his 2022 predictions. And here he is. So Brandon Webb, you've been on the podcast a gazillion times. The last one was for your, your novel, Steel fear. Steel fear. The next one is like cold fear cold or cold fear. steel. Cold fear. Yeah. Okay. The third one should be cold steel. Yeah. And we're, then, we're trying to figure that out because we're on book three right now. We're working on book three. So. I am so impressed, by the way, that you've converted your knowledge of military and also your knowledge of how to analyze algorithms to basically novels because you figured out what category you should be writing a novel in. You got a, a three book deal, right? And you start churning out these novels that are excellent, by the way. So, and we've talked about that on a prior podcast. We've also talked about, you know, being a Navy SEAL, you set up the SEALs uh, Sniper School, uh, which, you know, the guy that Amer the movie American Sniper is about graduated from that school. And you've written a bunch of books about that, but also you were the founder and I guess CEO of SoftRep, which is foreign policy news, defense news, of course, military news, and what I really like about your news company, as opposed to like every other news company, is that your sources are very real. Like yeah. you have, it's not like you have reporters that, you know, get press releases sent to them and then you write about them. You have people on the ground in a hundred different countries because of all of your military and, and intelligence agency contacts. And, and they're not just intelligence contacts from the US, but from yeah. other countries, you have thousands of connections working in every country. And so when you see news, these are things that are actually happening on the ground, which is why I always appreciate every single year, you started in 2012, I appreciate every single year your your predictions, they're, they're not biased left or right, uh, they're, they, they are what they are. Well, also, I would say this, when I started SoftRep, it was military culture only. We started just, it was a fun site. I started interviewing my friends, like Chris Kyle, the American Sniper. Mm -hmm. And then what happened was I built this writing team. And what what ended up happening was these guys and gals were, were reading what was happening in Fox, CNN, New York Times. And they're like, this isn't, they're not getting it right. Like, this isn't happening in Iraq or Afghanistan. And so they would call their friend and then they would write a story. And then all of a sudden, the New York Times calling me like, who the hell are you guys? And can you work with us? Um, so we've done several pieces on the investigative journalism side with New York Times, um, NBC, CNN. So it, it's it's kind of cool. It just it morphed into this news site organically. I didn't start SoftRep going, I'm going to have a foreign policy news site. It's just the guys that were writing for the site cared about what was happening in the world because they had served overseas. And so that's that's kind of how we started out in news. And then I had to figure out okay, now I'm the CEO of this news site. We can't do satire anymore and people are taking us seriously. So it was a lot of lessons learned on how to ethically, you know, run a, a news organization. Uh, but it's, I'm really proud of what we built over the years. And, and to your point, we, I think generally people th think we're conservative based on, you know, the fact that a lot of the the writers. Yeah, people associate the word military with conservative. Yeah, yeah, and which, I was about to say that is that which I do not see an ounce of that in your site, uh, no, le left you. or right. No, I'm, and I'm glad because we, we work really hard at just kind of trying to bias towards the truth instead of spinning it one way or the other. So I'm glad, and, I'm and glad here, that shows up that way. And it's a, an important perspective because first off, the military is supposed to be neutral. The president of the United States is the commander in chief of the military, regardless of what party he comes from or she comes from. And second, 
is that you really are, and I say you, I mean the military in general and intelligence forces and so on and SEAL forces, you're an ex-SEAL and all special forces. You are in every country dealing with what, dealing firsthand over life and death, what the political and economic issues are in that country. That's why the reporters are calling you. So it's it's for a lot of these reasons and and for predictions like what we're about to talk about that I really enjoy talking to you about. And I just saw this earlier today and gave you a call and you were available to talk. So I'm grateful for that. But let's let's get right into it. Like, um, you know, you started off with, you know, domestic affairs. And obviously the last two years have been, I don't want to say eye-opening, but have been very different. Nobody would have said in 2019 predictions, oh, the entire economy is going to be locked down for a year and we're going to have this pandemic. Like, no, everybody who made predictions at the end of 2019 was largely wrong, and that's fine. But now that we've seen all this, we're dealing with, I'd say the main issues internally we're dealing with, other than the polarization, are supply chain issues, inflation, employment issues. And maybe we can start off with those because they're very important in the sense of where the stock market's going, where inflation's going, and how, you know, the higher inflation is, the more political unrest there will be. And, you know, I have opinions on this, but I'm curious what your issues are. And also how we're going to deal with the next 10 variants of this pandemic is going to be interesting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, on the on the pandemic, I was thinking about it as I was, you know, rereading the the forecast for 2022 that, that the team put out. It, I was thinking, okay, this is this is just something we're living with now for the foreseeable future. I, I think like we're going to have an, probably a national uh, vaccine pass like they do in Switzerland. I actually have a have my Swiss vaccine card on, a, on an app, but I, I just can't, like you think, is this just going to be over and we're going to get rid of the masks? Like, I, I just don't see that happening. I feel like it's it's here to stay. Like this kind of pandemic lifestyle isn't going anywhere. Hopefully we get smarter and it becomes more convenient. But to your point, Domestically, it's gonna. It's already created this huge issue of you can't tell me what to do, right? And and it's it's very politicized and it split the country. That's kind of on this issue, which you know we're already a country divided. And let me ask you already. Uh, sorry if I interrupt because there's so many things you cover, like in each thing, like and you and you mentioned this in in the article that that the U.S. even the U.S. government's going to start waking up to the second and third order effects of policies around this. So for instance, what happens when you print all this money? And I'm not, I don't belong to the same camp that says inflation's mandatory once you print money, but there's also what happens to the economy when you shut down all these businesses, what happens to health issues when you shut down medical care, except for people with COVID, uh, what happens when there's mistrust around some of these issues and, and, and so on. So you address that in the article, but when you say it's, we're here to stay, you know, do you think that, and I know you're not a healthcare expert, so, but do you think that, you know, with Omicron, it sort of shows that maybe we're mutating towards less virulent versions. I mean, they're, they're more transmissible, but less dangerous than prior variants like Delta. Do you think that could trend towards COVID being essentially a non-issue, just like SARS-1 became a non-issue? No, I, I mean, I look, I've traveled extensively during the pandemic, and I've seen kind of how the EU, the EU is kind of in a similar situation, right? It has these different countries that are member states and, you know, you go, you have the vaccine. And if you go to Switzerland, where my girlfriend lives, you have to show your Swiss card. I had to go to the Swiss pharmacy and have them verify my New York vaccine. And then you get this like national app. So um, I, I, I just, because of the nature of global travel and we're so interconnected, I think I cannot see us putting away the masks and, and not going to some type of national vaccine proof. And then we're just, we're, it's going to be the way it is because people, they're having challenges with people in the workforce, you know, even though work, work is trending towards remote or it's more acceptable, you still have people in offices and, and, and the policies are all over the place. So, Eventually, I think the United States is going to have to come up with a, you can't just say, okay, Texas, you do it your way, Florida, you would do it your way. It's like, no, we're going to have to come up with some type of national plan. And, and it's, it's to travel interstate, you're going to have to get vaccinated and constantly stay up with, with these different variants. And I think 
that having this, whatever you call it, app, is just going to be a way of life from now until the future because these pandemics aren't going away. I mean, it was SARS years ago and now it's COVID and, and these different variants. Now, I got um, Omicron, my family did when we were in uh, Tulum, just ripped through us. And it was, it was pretty mild, like sore throat, you know, congestion and a little bit of down energy. But, but, so, but that's what I'm saying. Like if, if COVID ultimately, ultimately, if, if ultimately every variant is, you know, there, there's fewer and fewer deaths and it becomes like a, maybe a bad cold or a, a small flu. And, and by the way, I'm not saying that's what it is. I'm just saying if, do you think we'll still have as much seriousness around the issue or will eventually people have COVID fatigue and just be like, all right, enough with the mandates and this and that. I, I think that people are, there is that kind of COVID fatigue. I, I just don't see it, it going away anytime soon with, with an example of being this Omicron, right? It just pops up. It affected me. I almost didn't get allowed to board a plane to, to Switzerland. Um, so I think, and the, as you know, we've talked about this before, governments are just super slow to regulate things. I mean, look at what's happening in crypto and NFT space. They, they can't, it's so far advanced. They're just getting yeah. around to wrapping their head around regulating Bitcoin and, and, uh, and Ethereum. And now you have these crazy NFTs, which is, I'd love to talk about at some point. My son has started a crypto hedge fund and they're, they're investing heavily into NFTs, which a lot of utility NFTs that play into the metaverse and all this other crazy stuff. There's a couple of things though. One is, you know, right now there's 10 million jobs open in the, in the U S and maybe 7 million people looking for jobs. So that's a really wide gap. I've never seen that before really, where there's so many more jobs open than there are people to fill them. And, and it's even greater than that. If you consider that not every job is appropriate for every person who's looking for a job. And a lot of that is because of, a, people switch to a different lifestyle during COVID. They, they simplify their lifestyle and realize, oh, this is okay. And B, nobody wants to work if they, if they feel it's going to be shut down again or if they're going to have to wear masks all day for the rest of their lives. Or, you know, and whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. But I think that's what's happening. And you refer to that in, in, in your predictions. So what do you think happens there? Like, and where are all the employees that, that are no longer showing up for work right now? Probably Tulum. <laughs> um, that could be. Yeah. Because they're simpler, um, they figured out they could live in a simpler lifestyle and make money in other ways. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a really tough question. It's a smart question to ask and a, and a really tough question to answer. But I think this is, you know, one of the things I challenge my, Sean, my editor, I say, look, I think, you know, personally, I believe that we're going to, we're going to be into some type of recession end of, end of the year, end of 2022. And it's because this kind of hasn't caught up with us yet, right? The fact that, you know, the all these companies are trying to figure out what's happening with the workforce, regulations, insurance is saying some, you know, insurance companies are very smart on this. They're saying, okay, well, you know, you can't bring so many people back to the office. Um, and so it's just all this stuff happening and it just hasn't quite hit yet. Um, I, I thought we would be in a, in a recession, you know, much, much sooner than we are now. And it's like the stock market's still going crazy. Crypto's crazy. It's, it's hard to be in a recession when there is a lot of money circulating because, yeah. you know, $1 of money circulates maybe five to 10 times, meaning you buy something and the person you give it to, he buys something and, and on and on. So $1 printed is worth $5 of GDP. And I also, to your point, I don't know how the government is tracking the employment data because I do know that a lot of people are working freelance, way more freelancers out there, and they prefer to freelance as opposed to becoming a W-2. So I don't know if that's skewing the employment data or not. Th that's a great point because, I mean, in 2020, 55 million people were laid off from their jobs. So it makes much more sense for someone as a lifestyle strategy to say, you know what, it's a little, it used to be considered more safe to work for a company, might be more safe to work freelance. And you're right, I do not think the government tracks those numbers as much because it's not the same thing with the W-9s and it's, it's a little harder to track. Everybody does something different. Yeah, so that, that's an interesting point. Um, I, I would say this too about, it's, 
it's interesting. I just graduated this Harvard Business School program for entrepreneurs, and I would just grind on the the um, economics professor who is amazing. But I would say, how come you? How come more economists and organizations don't make bets or predict the future? It's it's hard to find people that are willing to put put a little skin in the game and make a prediction. So um, it's something I'm glad we're you know I'm glad we're doing. Um, the other thing I wanted, it's just totally unrelated, but we are we are one of the first news outlets to use an artificial intelligence writer. It's it's we pay for a service. It's it's powered by GPT three, which I think is one of the most powerful AI engines. Yeah. But you still have to point it in the right direction and edit it like a human writer. But this this AI will write in a thousand word article in about ten seconds, and it's pretty fascinating. And and I'm and even I had the conversation with one of the news outlets, the big ones that we work with. And, and I said, are you guys using this? And they're like, oh my God, no, we're not. We, we know about it. But I, I think it's because I, they're afraid they're going to be out of a job. <laughs> so. I, I got I to tell you something. So I had, um, so someone who's been on this podcast a lot, uh, Paulo, uh, I don't know if we've said his last name, so I won't say his last name, but he fed 1,500 of my blog posts into GPT-3. And, I, and he said, give me a title. And I said, 10 ways to stop being a loser. And, you know, which is kind of a, my style of, yeah. of title. Number four, stop reading my blog posts. <laughs> so, so it generated the article and that was number four. And it says, stop reading my blog posts. You don't have to read this. I'm writing this for myself. I write it so that I could be honest with myself. But if you want to be honest with yourself, then don't read this. <laughs> and that's pretty good. I don't remember ever writing anything like that. So it's pretty good capturing you know, by way of, of thinking. No, it's, it's fascinating. So how many articles does the AI write for your site? Oh, now probably five a week minimum. That's interesting. I'll send you the first article we wrote. It's like, could introduce it to our subscribers was okay. How, why should you write for soft rep? And it wrote this in a similar style than, than I, I think the, I can't remember if it was the daily beast or what, one of the news outlets in the UK used GPT-3, but we we did similar and, and we gave it a funny name. We named it uh, TARS after the US Marine Corps robot in the movie uh, Interstellar with Matt oh, McConaughey. Okay. Um, yeah. Just to kind of give it some character and, and, and uh, it was well received. People were like, wow, this is crazy. And and it was, it was kind so, of cool. Do you, so, 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 okay, so you do think the government will get a little bit more strict on whatever mandates they currently have. Like the trend is that they are going, whether, or not, again, for people listening, whether or not this is correct, right or wrong, that they should do this, you feel that's the trend that is yeah. going to be happening. And look, yeah, can you buck the system and live in your off the grid in Texas or Montana? Yeah, but if you're going to function in the modern America, you're going to have to be vaccinated. You're going to have to download the latest, you know, if it's uh, in, maybe it's state by state or, or, or a federal app, like a vaccine app, but even to travel to Europe now, it's for Americans, it's becoming, uh, it's almost impossible to travel with unless you're vaccinated, in my experience. You know, right now, America's polarized around these issues. Does this polarization get violent or get more extreme? Yes, I think that, unfortunately, the, the fact that the U.S. kind of overextended itself the last 20 years on this war on terror, we are fatigued. We have like war fatigue. Um, I, I do think Biden has made a lot of good choices, um, but also signaling Putin and Xi Jinping in China that, look, the U.S. is kind of like stepping back, focusing internally, and you're going to see a much more emboldened Russia, China, Iran, uh, North Korea, uh, and, and I think that in the future, the world in general is going to be a little bit more unstable, which 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 sucks to be you know to put it plainly. Um, and then domestically, yeah, we have big problems at home, and and we are a nation divided. It's we've seen just how COVID and the vaccine is is dividing us and been highly politicized. So, I, I personally think we need like massive political reform in America, I, I still just blows my mind that we can't, we can bank on our phone, but we can't vote by phone. Like that's just crazy to me. We're filling in little bubbles, you know, it's just. What is the, the outcome of that? Like what is everybody just going to have, everybody who's against mandates, which is like half the country, it's like a 50-50 thing. Is this going to be just like, hey, you know, 
buckle up and do this or and there's not going to be any resistance or what do you, what what's the what's the dangers of of an increasing trend towards regulation around this well i think that you know you're i i think the regulation it's people are just going to get to the point where they're just going to have to go okay this is just is the way it is so i i don't see that being the 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 fuel that or or the spark that ignites this civil unrest in America what i see is the fact that the income divide in america especially with covid kind of accelerating many things including you know industries like telemedicine it's accelerating the income divide in america and now we have this bigger gap of the extremely wealthy and the extreme poor and that's going to that's a big problem we have to solve when you go to visit yeah i spent a lot of time in switzerland this past year and seen how they kind of have a pretty good blend of socialism and capitalism uh, but you can be homeless like i don't even know if there is homeless in switzerland but i've seen the street people and they're doing very well they're riding around a thousand dollar thousand dollar bikes you know? um so i i do think though that in we really need as a country and it's not going to be solved by government it's going to be solved by by all of us hopefully in industry um right because because like for instance wage divide. controls wage controls don't work wealth distribution has not been no. shown to work i mean we've been trying it in a 50 year experiment that has only increased the wealth divide so and, and taxing the rich never really seemed to work because yep. you know you could argue on one hand, on the conservative side you could argue less incentives and on the left side you could argue the government doesn't really know how to spend any extra they don't there, there's a laugher curve where the more you tax people you still don't make more money because people either decide to make less or or they find more loopholes or they move to other countries or whatever so you don't really raise more revenue that way to distribute wealth so um which, which brings me to actually you know you, you, you there is a section here where you say people are going to vote with their feet so we we've seen um and you you mentioned this but you know uh, New York, California, and, and Illinois have lost hundreds of thousands of people. And in order, Texas, Florida, Arizona, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia have gained people in 2021. People are voting with their feet. How much is this going to continue? Well, we mentioned, um, you know, people like myself and yourself, right, who, who are very portable, have liquid assets it's easy for us to just go you know what i'm out of here right flip the switch and we go we go where we go um, we mentioned in the article that now more people who are maybe in the lower income brackets are are that have to sell a house or or make more arrangements so this that kind of initial wave of people move, voting with their feet is, is now trickling down to the to i think a lot more people who are it takes more planning and preparation for them to move. So I do think that that will continue more and more in 2022, just more, you're going to see it at the, the lower income levels to put it, put it simply. What about the higher income levels? Because you see like, for instance, in New York city bankers, they don't have to stay in New York city anymore. That's a, that's an interesting one because I'm, I'm in um, young presidents organization and I still have, I have friends who are, doing very well and they, and they they're not leaving the city because I would at least in my small group a lot of it's spouse driven their spouses don't want to leave New York they're like we love the city we can still go on our summer holiday we have the place in the Hamptons we can go to Europe so that at least in my circle that's largely driven by everyone I know that stayed it's it's been because well my wife you know my wife likes it here the big city um, and you and I have talked about this before. It's specifically New York is, is going through a, a big transformation. Um, and, and I, you know, it, it'll be a different New York um, in, in the next decade for sure. So, and, but this is related to the whole country. Like we've seen two issues of, or three issues really affect the economy in the past year or even few months. One is, uh, well, let's just deal with them one at a time. So supply chain issues, there's all these boats lining up to get into the country. And I guess because also China now is slow. I, I don't even know what are the supply chain issues. <laughs> I mean, the, and I'd love to come back to the domestic stuff because I think a lot of it, 
a lot of we're going to see a lot of changes with our the way we police. Um, but to answer your question, that from my experience, the supply chain issues are um, what people experience it, and myself included. I, I sold a business that had a supply chain. Our e-commerce subscription box business got hit massively, um, and it was because, um, at least the, how I was affected, my shipping rates. I had no no net terms. It went to net zero. Uh, suppliers, all of our Asia suppliers dried up. Um, so I think now it's people are seeing this. And, and I was able to talk to the CEO at Nissan when I graduated uh, the last week of that Harvard program. We were able to to zoom with this with the COO, and and he was saying even Nissan now is looking to go more regional to have more regional suppliers to to kind of de-risk having these these you know, long distance supply chains that are are probably going to be continuously uh, at risk. Um, and, and people realize that even, especially in America, we wake up and realize that we've exported 90% of the drug manufacturing to China, probably not a smart idea. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so you see that shifting more towards domestic production or at least diversified among many countries and not just China. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But but at the moment though, away from what China. is the supply what is the supply chain issue right now? Like is it because China is not producing fast enough or like what are we missing? What's missing in the supply chain link right now? Well, I I've traveled um, the last 4 or 5 months all over Europe and back to the US and and what I'm hearing from my YPO group and and these are, you know, executives of businesses in the US and Europe, it's, yeah, everyone's backed up. You had this kind of every time out for a year plus with COVID where everything just shut down. And now it's like the engine's starting up again. And at the same time, people are trying to hedge and change suppliers, but it's, they're just kind of trying to get caught up. And so you just have, it's basic supply and demand. There's just not enough supply. Everyone so will like, start making masks and, you know, it's like, okay, now, now how do we get, you know, even luggage, right? Right. So, so like nobody bought luggage for a year and now they need twice as much luggage, but they, that those factories haven't even like geared up for, or, or a great example might be housing. Yeah. Like it requires lumber to build houses. And for a year, nobody was building a new house. Now twice as many people are building houses, but we don't even have one X back yeah. in shape yet. Yeah. So, so, and, and one thing this is leading to is, okay, well, when there's low supply and even, and, and higher demand is economics 101 is higher prices. So we're seeing, yeah. in, we're seeing inflation based on supply chain. And we're also seeing inflation based on, or theoretically based on the federal reserve, quote unquote, printing more money or borrowing more money. And a lot of economists say, or a lot of men on the street also say this will lead to higher permanent inflation. And I'm not so, so sure. Where, where do you guys stand on that? Um, I think we're like, do you think the supply chain price increases are, are permanent? I mean, look, it's tough to tell someone, you know, as a business, say, this is the new price, have someone pay it and then go, oh, you know, we're going to lower it. So I, I personally don't think that the prices are going to come down. I think I think the inflation is more permanent in nature, um, but I also admit that we're in the kind of unknown territory, right? We're, we're in the uh, where we're just printing money as as the U.S. and in the America is one of the few countries can do it because people trust the dollar. I mean, oil's pegged to the dollar, so I, I do think it, what I have heard in my international friends and, and my business group is that. What happens if all of a sudden China has more influence and all of a sudden, you know, people's, the U.S. dollar loses, um, for instance, if it just changed from um, the Middle East, they say, you know what, we're not lo no longer going to peg the dollar to the, to the price of, of a barrel of oil. Um, it's now going to switch to Chinese currency. I mean, what does that do to the U.S. trust and, and the market? Okay, but let me ask you a question. Like Realistically, are people ever going to trust the, the Chinese currency over the U.S. currency. Yeah, that's the tip, and that's a great question. I, I do think that's a big issue. It'd be a really tough one to overcome. Um, but I mean, China is China's playing the long game, and it, it's they can do that because the political system. Where in America now we're 
you know, every two years we're talking about who the next president's going to be. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're in a, I think that's one of the reasons we're, the U.S. is in a pretty good shape coming out of, out of this, this COVID situation is because generally everyone looks up to the U.S. Uh, right. I think, I think this is the, the big question with, so again, there's two issues, supply chain, you know, if there's not enough supply of products and there's demand, prices go up. And that could turn into permanent price changes or a competition could bring some of those prices down and, and whatever. You know, another issue is, okay, if prices are up 5% this year, well, last year they were up 0%. There was even deflation a little bit. So, uh, you know, it averages out. Um, but yeah. but the money printing one is a, a strange issue because we yeah. printed up something like 30% of all the money in history in the past year. And the big question there is not yeah the yeah the big yeah. question is we can, can we do that and and i think like like you said like you know people trust the american current it's again it's a supply and demand issue it's not just a supply issue so if there's demand for the us dollar we could do it and the question is what other currency could there possibly be demand for as long as there's demand for the us dollar as long as people are buying us bonds then we can print money now what yeah. the second like you said as you just said the second that trust wavers then there's serious trouble. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and and that may be more of a longer term thing to think about. Um, but you know, be thankful we're not a country like Venezuela. I, we, I, I ended up speaking with one of the largest grocery retailers in Venezuela, and they they were having to change their prices five times a day. What causes hyperinflation in a country like Venezuela? Well, I think in the Venezuela, and they they tried the print. They tried printing more money; it just didn't work, right? And, and people have no trust in the currency, and so you end up, you know, with these wild, wild uh, fluctuations. But that's, you know, that's probably a, a question an economist is more, more suited to, <laughs> to answer. Well, um, I think I think I think part of the problem is like when the U.S. borrows money, people lend dollars, like like we have to return the the, the loan in dollars. When Venezuela borrows money, they probably also have to return the money in dollars or yen or whatever. So part of the problem is when you borrow money in a currency that you don't control, you can get into hyperinflation. But yeah. the U.S., it's a little, that's again, it's a little, you know, a lot of things have to go wrong for the U.S. to, to A, have to borrow money in a currency not their own, and B, people have to lose faith in the U.S. currency for you know that to collapse. So yeah. I'm not as much a money supply theorist as some economists are with inflation. Now, by the way, also people should note inflation is not necessarily bad for society. Hyperinflation is like you mentioned with Venezuela. If you have to increase your prices five times a day, that's that's a severe problem. But since inflation started, let's say we went over the gold off the gold standard in 1971. Yeah, America's created. The internet, the web, we've sent rockets to the moon, you know, there's we've built a trillions of dollars of wealth. So it's not necessarily a, a, a massively bad thing. And and also, like in Latin America specifically, like if you're in Argentina, you're the US powers that economy. Most people I know, they borrow and and the local currency convert to dollar as quick as possible. Like and so these Latin American economies are, are very vested in the in the dollar as well and i think that's that's other places around the world but um again that's i don't think it's going in is at risk anytime soon i think in general while there might be inflation and the supply chain thing is going to take a while to unravel you do kind of predict that will it, it'll slow economic growth but not trigger a recession and that in general the u.s government kind of survives all of these types of shocks you also predict that in 2022 we're going to see the house and the senate go republican but the president will be democrat and that will kind of create which by the way when the, when the president is one party and the house and the senate is another party that's been the times of greatest economic boom because it means government can't make decisions and <laughs> so capitalism works. Yeah. But, but do, do you really think that um, parties will switch in, in the Congress? 
Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of a, I think it just occurs naturally, right? You have these these swings. Um, yeah. What, like, longer-term outlook, what concerns me is is Trump kind of controlling the Republican Party and, and what does the next election look like? Um, I think it could be pretty nasty. Well, does it, so that's two questions. A, does he control the Republican Party? I, I think he has a large, uh, I mean, it seems like he's controlling a large percentage of the donor base. Um, so any, but I don't know. That's a good question. Like if Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who's a Republican, and by the way, this is not, this is just analyzing from like almost like a game theoretic point of view. If, if yeah. I'm Ron DeSantis, do I, do I kiss ass to Donald Trump in order to get his donors? Or do I say, listen, I, you know, a lot of people think I did a good job, blah, blah, blah. Some people don't think I did a good job, but I have my own base in the Republican Party. I'm going to go out there and and do well in the debates, and maybe I don't even have to raise as much money as as people think. Yeah, I mean, I I think you're seeing this happen already within the Republican Party. They're trying to kind of go neutral or or distance themselves from Trump without kind of drawing his his ire, right? Um, yeah. So the the problem is he just has a ton of a ton of uh, influence and now he's got this you know i forget what the hell they call it but they've got this trump media business and 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 so it is just that launched yet or anything i don't i haven't heard of it i i, I mean i've heard of it but i haven't heard it launched or anything i think it has uh, but i don't know what state it is in like i saw the deck on it i'm happy to share it privately with you but um, oh yeah that's interesting it's um yeah it's just the thing is he can make a lot of noise and a lot of a lot of unrest uh, seems to follow him. And, and that's my concern in a country that's still divided, in wider income gap, a lot of problems. And then what happens, a lot of people have, a lot of, a lot of cities like Portland, Oregon have, have gone a long way to defund the police. Um, I, I do believe that we need a, a good police force. I, I also would agree with the sentiment that the culture, a lot of, a lot of police culture had needed to change. Um, and, uh, you know, I, shit, I was arrested as a young 20, 20 year old Navy SEAL. Uh, I've been through the system. It, it's not, it's not nice. And I can only imagine someone, you know, a minority going through the same process, what, what, what their experience was. But, um, anyway, yeah, it's something that just concerns me looking towards the next presidential election. Uh, it just seems like the, all the dry tinder is there and it could just, it could just go. So a lot of this also will be related to what's going on in the economies and politics of other countries. So like starting with Europe, Europe is like all shut down right now because of Omicron. How much can they do that without their economy totally collapsing? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think that, I mean, the EU has a lot of, a lot of problems to solve. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't really have a, a, a fleshed out opinion on that other than that it has to like you can only um, especially in most of the eu states they have big big social programs right they're spending massively so how long can they do that before they have to kind of kickstart the economies again that that would be my my question and 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 the eu is not allowed to print money the way the us is they have to issue debt beforehand but um uh, what about other issues in, in Europe? Like, for instance, is Russia going to invade the Ukraine? I mean, look, I've talked about this over the last year. I think um, what people don't understand is Ukraine is very historically significant to Russia. At one time, it, I think um, it was Kiev was the, the capital of, of, of Russia, right? Oh, I didn't know that. And it's when you look at how Putin is very nationalistic, um, you know, if you work for most of, if you have a secure, like clearance related job in Russia, you, and you quit tomorrow, you can't even leave the country and get a passport, I think for five years, something like that. So he's very nationalistic. When you look at the media, the media constantly feeds to the, to the kind of Russian based population. Like, look, America's a mess. Look at all the unrest. You have Chewbacca and, and Duck Dynasty invading the capital. You know, he's constantly like feeding this you know, how Russia is so good. And, and so I think, you know, 
Putin's biggest concern, and we mentioned it in the in the article, is that Ukraine doesn't become part of the EU or join NATO. And so I think an easy one to kind of, um, an easy trade would be just for the EU and America to say, okay, look, not gonna, not gonna allow Ukraine to join NATO and kind of get Putin to back off. But, but the thought experiment is, look at what happened to Crimea. He just took it and nobody kind of did anything. And it's, it's an afterthought now. And I think the same could be done with Ukraine. I do not think um, America is going to go to war over Russia just taking Ukraine, which is, it has this historical significance. I think Putin can make a, a, a big argument that says, look, this is part of our part of Russia. It's, it's, it's important to our history and our culture. And they, he could do it, especially with, you know, the U.S. coming off this 20 years of, of spreading itself too thin all over the globe, fighting these wars. Nothing, right, like, nobody does imagine. anything about it. Like, what are they going to do right. about it? Or will Europe want to do anything about it? No, Europe. And we wrote an article, actually, Hunter, my son, wrote this article about a study that Rand did with these war games and, and using artificial intelligence. They they war gamed if, if Putin invaded Western Europe and and Europe loses every time. And so Putin knows this, you know, if we're writing about, he, he knows about this. And so I just think though it's Ukraine. I love Ukraine. I have tons of friends in Ukraine. I've been to Kiev many times. We have an advertising agency we work with out of Kiev. And I, I just think that if, if he did annex Ukraine, Europe wouldn't give a shit to be honest. And America's like shrugging their shoulders, like we got problems at home. So I do think that it's a possibility, um, but more likely scenario is what we talked about in, the, in our prediction for 2022 is that, you know, Europe and America just kind of back off the whole the whole NATO thing with, with Ukraine and, and that kind of lets things subside a bit. I do know, I don't think Putin has any interest in, you know, following Hitler's playbook and invading Western Europe. Um, but in his kind of what we've seen, how he how he manages things internally, the annexation of Ukraine is is possible and, and could be a big kind of a big importance thing for him. Because when you look at how, where he's at in his stage of life, he's in that kind of legacy zone. It's like, what legacy is he going to live in? And how is he thinking about his legacy? And that you know, that kind of plays into it as well. You know, that's a very interesting way to look at it. Like, okay, he's in this legacy zone. If he invades Ukraine and it causes a problem, that's what he's going to be remembered for. And, and so the question is, does he kind of have a soft landing here where maybe he builds very tight economic relations with them as opposed to just militarily annexing them? Or does he say, you know, you know, Russia has to be restored to its old glory and and basically own everything around it. And does he does he annex them? Yeah, no, that's that's the question. And I've talked about it with my Ukrainian friends, and they're like, "Yeah, it's a risk." And what do you think? How do you think Ukraine will respond? I don't think they could do anything. They can't stand up to to Russia's military power. Not a chance. I mean, they're they're fighting these you know the small kind of skirmishes along the border. Like, like, well, what does it mean? Though? Let's say you, Russia does take over Ukraine. Will the life of a, the average Ukrainian citizen be worse or not change? I think so. I, I think so. Because right now, Ukrainians um, have access to the EU. They have pretty much free travel, um, relatively unrestricted. Now that all goes away. So it, it's, and look, the problem is, I, I think if I'm Putin, I'm going to go, okay, this is going to be a problem for me because Ukrainians have tasted capitalism and freedom. And once you give that to them, it's very hard to take away. Uh, and I think that's a big problem that, that Putin has. And if he were to do it, he's going to have to just lock it down with an iron fist. Um, and they're just going to have to, you know, get real with the fact that they're now you know, part of Russia. But like, this is a naive question, but what does it mean for Putin if he takes over Ukraine? Does that mean he gets their natural resources or like, what does you, what does a country have that they give to their new rulers when they're invaded in today's day and age? I guess he gets their tax base. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd have to go look at what I, yeah, tax base. I, I think largely it's a symbolic 
kind of play to this nationalism strategy of like, look, we took it back. I've, I'm the one that I'm the president that got basically the territory of Ukraine back inside Mother Russia. And, and it could be a, you know, it, I think it's more symbolic. Yeah, they have some resources, tax base, that kind of thing. But Putin's going to have a big problem on his hands because a lot of these young, you know, it's like what happened in Hungary after World War II. You know, the people that that wanted freedom left. You know, I know, I know. Uh, it's actually my girlfriend's stepfather was on the national water polo team, and the moment he could, he he jumped ship to Switzerland. So okay, so now this leads to uh, China. So China, obviously, there's been a lot of tensions around Taiwan. Does China invade Taiwan? No, I think China has taken a very long, patient approach to Taiwan. I think China gets Taiwan back in the long run, but they just don't have any need to invade. I think they, they just go, they're waiting very, very patiently. I think they rattle the saber of Taiwan to distract the media and, and heads of state to draw their attention, maybe away from the fact that China has a big housing bubble that they're dealing with right now. And so I think Taiwan That's very interesting. relatively low risk China, China invades. So, so like for instance, 31 countries are doing military games around Taiwan right now, including the U S in anticipation of, or at least in warning of, uh, China potentially invading Taiwan. But you're saying that this is kind of a distraction while China deals with its economic issues, like their largest real estate company, I guess named Evergrande is uh, going bankrupt. And what, what's going on economically in China? Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's a tough one to answer other than what, what we know that and can access through our own media sources. But, but I have friends in China and they've kind of helped me shape this opinion of, no, China doesn't want to invade Taiwan. They're going to get it eventually and they know it. They're just waiting patiently. And, and look, you know, how much, how many billions of dollars does it cost America to go war game in the Ch South China Sea? It's a huge distraction, huge waste of resources. And China just kind of sits back and goes, okay, they're focused over here. Now we can kind of deal with our own internal uh, issues and, and the optics of it to the rest of the world. Will, will they deal with those internal issues? Like, no, to, to your point, I think China has a big problem. I mean, they, they have a massive population tons of environmental issues, just feeding that population and supplying, you know, just, just the amount of uh, oil that, and we mentioned this in the predictions as well, is that the fact that China is so, is relying on, you know, external sources for their oil consumption uh, is a problem. And I think China has, as much as the U.S. has, I think, has its own issues around uh, trust with this kind of schizophrenic foreign policy that's happened the last 20 years, you know, China has, doesn't have a good reputation. They've gone in these African countries said, Oh, we're going to build your roads and your bridges and all this infrastructure. Just give us access to your local resources that come in and they just take like the Borg and, and Star Trek. They just <laughs> take everything, exhaust all resources. And then these governments that had these shiny new bridges and roads, the, the roads are crumbling because there's been no plan to kind of maintain the infrastructure. And China's like, we're out. You know? So they've just come in and just ravaged these, these countries throughout Africa. Uh, it's one of the reasons why South Africa is never, you know, they're very diligent about preventing the Chinese, you know, from even accessing their coastal fisheries. Um, so China has a big problem. They have a big problem with trust as well. And what if they don't solve it? Yeah, that, I think they have a, you know, that's probably what's keeping Xi Jinping up at night. It's like, how do I, how do I deal with all this internal stuff that's happening in a, you know, a hungry population, a very poor population? And, and how do we keep up, you know, with, you know, China's, you know, what I think is their ultimate goal. They, they want to be number one and they probably are the largest economy now in the world. But, um, you know, they've, they've got issues probably you and I don't even, even can't even comprehend, but, right. but, but, um, yeah, I mean, look what happened to the USSR, you know, that could go, our model of democracy is not perfect, but it works. People like freedom. I think in, inherently people want to be free. Um, and that's a big problem for China in the modern age where, yeah, they try and limit the internet and the stuff, but it's very hard 
you know, people, the smart people now can kind of get around it. So I think that's their, their biggest issue is give somebody, I, I know I have very wealthy Chinese friends when given the choice and they have the resources, they don't choose to live in China. They leave, they go buy real estate in New York and Los Angeles and they get the hell out of China. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, that that's going to be a big problem for China in the future is, is, if and when the population kind of wakes up and says, we're tired of this, that's a big problem. Uh, and on the reverse side, I think India, despite its various border problems, you know, U.S. manufacturing trusts India a little yeah. bit more right now, even though there's no, there's not really a manufacturing system in India, but, you know, we're going to, that's one way we'll diversify our supply chain is buying from India and, and India, you know, Indians are not leaving as much as they used to, to come to the U.S. for, for new opportunity. And so, you know, that's going to be an interesting issue in, in that region. Um, although, you know, again, it depends on how we treat these countries and how China does and so on. Yeah, India is a India is a, it's an interesting one because you have their defense industry, you're going to see a, a massive boom. And because now, you know, look at the, what's happened in Afghanistan with the U.S. pulling out. I think domestic terrorism increases in India because now you have this, you know, well-armed Taliban and uh, backed by the Chinese um, as well. And, and so, um, you know, India's in a tough spot. I mean, it still blows my mind that we have this strong alliance with Pakistan um, and not with India because India seems like a pretty damn good partner to me um, for the many of the reasons you mentioned on the supply chain. All right, so what are the five things to worry about for 2022 in the world? Um, I would worry about Russia and Ukraine um, and how that affects Europe. I would worry about a nuclear Iran. Um, I, I say this because, you know, Iran has been a known state sponsor of terror for years and years. And when you have this radical ideology coupled with, with nuclear weapons, that's not a very good combination. Um, so that keeps me up at night. Um, no one's talking about North Korea and what's happening there. Well, okay, that's very interesting. Well, I'll get to that in a second. But like a nuclear Iran, is that how possible is that? I think it's very possible. However, uh, underscore, you know, Israel's not going to sit by idly and let that happen. So, I, you know, it's it's like conflict. There could be a war with Israel and Iran. And, and how does that look? But I think also that could be why, like Iran, correct me if I'm wrong, they're more... Shia and the Arab countries are more Sunni. And so I think that's maybe why there's all these alliances between like Qatar and Saudi Arabia and so on with Israel is that Israel is the check in the region on Iran. Yeah. So uh, perhaps that's happening naturally. Yes, but the point is America largely destabilized Iraq. Iran has more influence, um, pretty much running a proxy government in, in Iraq. But you know, just regional stability and the fact that we still are heavily relying on on oil oil coming out of the region. Um, and so what is that, how, how does that affect the world, right? I, I don't think the U.S. has an appetite to go, to go to war, but we may just be drug into that conflict, given everything you just mentioned with the, the alliances. So, but that keeps me up at night. That, that's a very real, real problem. And if I'm Iran, I'm going to be a little bit more emboldened, knowing that that kind of Biden is looking inward, and the U.S. doesn't have a, a big appetite for a, for a big conflict. So, if any, it was a time to do anything, it would be now. But that that's probably the number one thing I think about when I think about global kind of global stability is is what happens if Iran goes nuclear, Israel goes to war, and just kind of like how does how does the rest of the world look at what, what's going on in, in the region? Because it's when you when you travel enough, you realize it's very close to Europe, right? You know, uh, the Middle East. It's not as far away as people think. Uh, what else? It's hard for me to come up with five, <laughs> but but those are the no. But that's a pretty that's a pretty serious one. And yeah. I wonder. My, my gut tells me is that, I mean, Israel's never quote unquote gone to war. They fought wars like when they've been attacked, but they've never really gone to war. Although with Iran, in the past, they've attacked facilities that they felt were building nuclear weapons. And they have an extremely good intelligence force. And, and now that they have all these alliances with the other Arab nations, my guess is Israel's being relied on as the checks and balance on Iran. And, yep. and 
I think that is a big worry, but my guess is I, I, somehow that balance holds because of, because of Israel and because of its new alliances with the other Arab nations, I hope. Yeah, and then I'd say another big concern for me is just civil unrest at home. You know, how, how does America kind of deal with, deal with these issues of, uh, you know, racial tension, uh, social, like economic uh, disparity and that, those types of things, which are very real problems. Like, um, you know, we live in a, a great country and, and have a ton of, it's a rich country by all means, but we still can't afford to pay. Uh, you know, a trip to the emergency room shouldn't bankrupt a middle-class family. Um, yeah. And largely the middle class is vanishing anyway, but but that's a big problem, you know, healthcare, education, civil unrest. What's one optimistic thing you think will be 2020? Let's, let's close on a note of optimism. Yeah, which I like. I am an optimist. Um, look, I think artificial intelligence, the fact that we do have these problems that America has been very, we have a ton of smart people to kind of figure this out. And, and the fact that, you know, I'm a member of this Young Presidents Organization, it's 26,000 executives globally, and we're all having this conversation about how do we, as industry and business, you know, leaders in business, how do we help solve the problems of the world and, and the problems of America? So it's no longer, you know, heads of big corporations sticking their head in, in their own PL and not giving a shit about the rest of the world. I think they're that, and, and it's why you're seeing now a lot of businesses take up these social causes and environmental initiatives because because we know we have these problems to solve and a government is not going to solve them alone that industry has to pitch in so i think i'm very optimistic about that having been a parent to gen z kids i'm very optimistic on their approach and how empathetic they are to the world how my kids all carry reusable bottles gen z is a is a great generation and i think with artificial intelligence and the technology emerging around it, the, the fact that the metaverse are creating, it's like could double or triple the global economy just with crypto and all these currencies. I, I, I am very optimistic, especially around artificial intelligence. Let, let me, and I know this is not your area of expertise, but, but let me ask you about the metaverse. Like you and I, I don't feel like I'm ever going to hang out in the metaverse. <laughs> like who other than for like, I don't like things. And, and by the way, I'm a believer in the, the rise of things like the metaverse and NFTs and so on, but maybe for different reasons than, than most, but why would someone use the metaverse other than, um, I, I don't like things where the only use is to make money. So like, what are, what are some real world use cases of the metaverse? Well, and I, it's fine if gaming is the, is the no, use I think case, but I, I think gaming is, is a top use case. I know guys in their forties, my age that are playing call of duty for eight, six, eight hours a day. They're in these groups and that's a form of escapism. They're, they're in this other world. And, and I think the, the metaverse, one of the best books that I've, I've read on is ready player one. As, you know, people are escaping to this world and, and to live it out. Um, you know, and, and look, you know, if, if I could jump into an avatar and hop in my spaceship and go conquer and explore galaxies, that sounds pretty exciting. That might suck me back into gaming. <laughs> yeah. So I do, and, and, you know, we're seeing, you know, just look at the explosion with, with, um, with crypto and it's people think crypto they just automatically go to bitcoin or ethereum it's like and the nft space is crazy what's happening there and in large part of it is metaverse related there's all these these characters that are being by this nft character like this there's a thing called astronaut nft where it's part of this new metaverse that's coming next year and they could buy the astronaut and they get a piece of land and a spaceship and they can go explore the metaverse like it's just nuts but it's it's uh it's happening and um you know yeah particularly the interoperability of all these worlds so like if someone's in call of duty and another person's league of legends with the yes. so-called metaverse and nfts you could travel from one yep. quote-unquote universe to another and you know, these games have never had that kind of interoperability. And, you know, now Facebook's argument is that people are going to start using the metaverse for remote work. So you could have meetings in, a, in what seems like a real world place as opposed to Zoom. Which is kind of like the Ready Player One. If anyone wants to see an example, read the, read the book Ready Player One. 
because they, yeah. they go to school in the in the metaverse. You know, it's just so. It's yeah, like, that's a good point. Which one becomes adopted? You know, there's a couple search engines before Google took over. So which metaverse is going to rule? I don't think Facebook's is. I think Facebook has too many issues around just trust and and identity and reputation. I agree. I think I think uh, Facebook's foray into the metaverse is just because they're afraid. People don't understand the metaverse is not one metaverse. It's it's thousands. And Facebook is basically standing up and saying, no, it's really going to be us, but five years from now. So just wait. Nobody should use the metaverse until we're ready. <laughs> and but it but it's just like like you say with the search engines. You know there was Excite, Lycos, Infoseek, all these others, and then Google One, and and before Facebook there was. Friendster and MySpace and Tribe.com and GeoCities and then there was Facebook. So I think they're afraid that technology will pass them by and they're probably correct about that. But yeah, so so Brandon Webb, uh, I think people can find the predictions for 2022 at softrep.com, S-O-F-R-E-P.com. It's one of the few news sources I really trust for myself. I know you guys do a great job. I've been following this for years and we've been talking about this for years. These predictions were really well thought out and interesting. And also, people, and you also you acknowledge that predictions are what they are. They're not facts. They're there's something in the future that we're guessing. But you guys do have a lot of facts and knowledge and experience to, to support it. And it's hard to say this will happen and this won't. But at least you you bring to life the issues that we need to be looking at. Yeah. So and I, I appreciate that on, on the website and and appreciate your readiness to come in this podcast. As, as soon as anytime. you send out the email, <laughs> here's our predictions. I said, hey, come on and you were, you were ready. So thank you so much. Uh, anytime, anytime. Thanks, Brandon. 